You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering time, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Bubba. Praise the Lord. Praise God from whom, uh, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 10. And we are excited to have Jennifer and Mauricio Campos and their family going to be starting with us here, di- being our Four Central Florida director. And it's amazing just all that is already going on behind the scenes. Just, uh, just this week, we gave out 1,320 40-pound boxes of food to our community. Uh, praise God through 4 Central Florida, and I am excited about what God has got in store for our church as we go out and not only come to church, but go out and literally be the church. And uh, you know, we are beginning, we are in the midst of our 40 days of prayer and, and, and fasting, and we are tonight just going to have a wonderful time that kicks, hopefully will kickstart that for you and your family. And so I want to encourage you to be here tonight at 6 o'clock. There will be preschool child care available, so please make every effort to be there and to be a part of the ministry tonight. So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump into God's Word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work that only your Spirit can do today. Lord, help us to find joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. uh, Luke chapter 10, let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Luke chapter 10, verse number 1. The Word says, After this the Lord, Jesus, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be on this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Amen. And do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, let's say this verse together. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You may be seated. How many of you have ever had a bad day? Sometimes I feel like that Sundays can be the most difficult days of the week. Can I get a witness? 
Maybe this morning, those of you that got up here for the 930 service, you maybe uh, you fought your spouse on the way here. You fought your kids on the way here. You know, there are times that uh, early on when, when, we were, when the kids were a little bit smaller that I would just, you know, April and I would ride together. And I told my wife, I said, honey, you get the kids ready and I'll wait in the car and just honk the horn for you, Okay. Listen, sometimes you lose your religion coming to church, and uh, hopefully you haven't lost it yet this morning. But you know what? Sometimes you have a long week. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I feel like that 2020 and now 2021 have probably, many of you have experienced a lot of bad days. We are in a season that has been very depressing for so many people. People uh, are, are isolated. You know, many of you that are watching online, maybe you would love to be here. You would love to be around people, but because of your health condition, or because of just other things, you're, you're isolated. You know, things have been closed and opened and closed. You have to wear a mask. And I don't know about you, but breathing in a mask is not that fun, right? I mean, nobody says, man, I just, I'm glad I wear four masks so that I can breathe better. Nobody says that. Things have changed. And we are, as a result of what's going on in our world, are going through a mental health crisis. But even pre-pandemic, we were a, a nation filled with a lot of people that struggled with depression. Did you know the number one uh, prescription medication is antidepressants here in America. A lot of people are bummed out. A lot of people are sad. And even Christians get depressed. You know, after yesterday's ball game, I'm very depressed. <laughs> and the reason, however, that many people, not, not, not the only reason, but the reason that many people are depressed or sad is because they're pursuing joy in people or things, but they're not finding any. Now, not all depression is linked to uh, a sinful desire to look for other things for joy, but, but we do know that a lot of people are depressed and they're sad because they're chasing joy, but they're not finding it. Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. Your joy is not in being married or having a perfect marriage. Your joy is not in having kids or having perfect kids. Your joy is not in having a great career, making a lot of money. Your joy cannot be found in the stock market. Your joy can't be found in your fitness or your health. Your joy cannot be found in your sports team. True joy can only be found in Jesus. And here's the good news about Jesus. He never changes. Do you know that this morning, he loves you today just as much as he loved you yesterday, and he'll love you tomorrow just as much as he loves you today? His love never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out on you and me. Well, we're going through this series called Go, and we've been giving you a definition of what a disciple is. And the other day, someone uh, uh, questioned somebody, and they said, well, what is a definition of a disciple? And they, 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 they didn't have a clue. And so we want to make sure that you have a working, functional definition of a disciple. So here is our definition of a disciple that we want to make sure that you understand, because if we're asking you to go make them, you need to know what one is. And so a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. Our prayer is, is that you understand that, ver that, that, that definition and it becomes real to you. So Jesus here in Luke chapter 9, and now we're into chapter 10, has been training his disciples in how to make disciples. Uh, the verses 1 through 20 are very unique, only found in Luke's gospel. And here what we see is we see Jesus is modeling to his disciples what it looks like to launch out disciples. 
He has been teaching his 12 how to live a life of faith and trust, and he's been modeling that to them and allowing them to assist in all of these things. And now he's going to teach through sending out the 72, he's going to teach his 12 and us today where to find true joy and helping others follow him. And so in this section, and this is going to feel like three sermons in one, all right? I'm just going to tell you that right now. But in this section, we learn, number one, that God brings us in to send us out. Number two, that our faith is personal but never private. And number three, our joy is not in what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for us. Let's look at those three. Number one, God brings us in to send us out. Verse one, after this, the Lord appointed 72. Now, after this, is there was a group of guys that we talked about before in other sermons that wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus told them the cost of following him, and, and they took off. And so after this, you see that Jesus now is going to appoint 72. Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, and he's talked about what it means, that if you follow me, you're going to get a cross. But before you get a crown, you're going to get a cross. And so he chose 72 guys. He sends them out two by two. In chapter 9, if you remember, when we pretty much began this series, Jesus sent out the 12, and he gave them the instructions of preaching the gospel, casting out demons, liberating people from their demons, and healing the sick. All of these things Jesus has modeled to his disciples. And so now he sends out the second batch, which is 72. Now, why is this kind of important? I think this is, this is probably something that we don't think about, but it should be very up upon our minds as we read this. If Jesus had only sent the 12, who were the 12? Those were his disciples. These were the professionals. If Jesus had only sent out the professionals, one might conclude that only the professionals are called to go out. But here we have this 72. Notice here in the Greek it says, he sent 72 others. Not just the professional disciples, he sent the others. Now, the interesting part of this, and there is some debate whether the word is 70 or 72 in the Greek manuscript, and there's a lot of debate here, but here's what we know. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Old Testament scriptures translated from the Hebrew to Greek, in Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, there were 72 nations. Now, we don't know if this is the correlation that Luke is doing, but it's essentially saying that Jesus here is sending out from all people to go reach the world for him. And so what we see here is that Jesus is teaching us in this example that ministry is not just for the, for the professionals, for the leaders, but it's for everyone. Everyone is on mission for Jesus. This week, you are on mission for Jesus. Whether you go to school, whether you go to work, whether you uh, do out in the, the playground, or, or whether you are out at Walmart, you are on mission for Jesus. See, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. And so the basis upon as we think about this is that a disciple of Jesus has been radically brought in. They've been radically brought in by the grace of God. They're brought into intimacy with God. You think about this. You understand that you have the privilege of having a personal relationship with the one who hung the stars? Wow. You can have an intimate relationship with him. He has radically brought us in, and he's also radically called us out. Send us on mission. So Jesus brought the 12 in and the 72 in so that he can send them out. Jesus didn't bring you in just so that you can be in. Jesus brought you in not just so that you can be saved. He brought you so you can be sent. He brings us in to send us out. So in verse number two, he says that you need to understand something. 
He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's using an agricultural term. So he's getting these 72. He's going to send them out ahead of him on mission for him, spreading the good news, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And he says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, as a teenager, uh, I kind of grew up in some agrarian place, some rural cities uh, in my life. I lived in Kentucky, lived in Arkansas. And I remember one time when I was in my teenager, teenage years, we lived in Kentucky, and there was this lady at our church. Um, her name was Sarah Brogel, and she, uh, she said, hey, pastor, or not pastor, she said, hey, Alan, would you uh, want to help me pick some peas at, at my house? And if you come to my house and pick some peas, I'll pay you $25. Well, I was a teenager. And I said, sign me up. Well, as I got to her house, I realized this wasn't a small little garden. This was an entire acre of pea bushes filled with pea pods. And guess what? The harvest was plentiful, but the labor was few. (laughs) And while I was there, I was praying to the Lord of the harvest. (laughs) Sin other laborers into the vineyard, to the field. Listen, what Jesus is saying is here is this. There are billions of people waiting to hear the gospel and relatively few are willing to do the work to get it to them. I want you to understand, and, and, and we think that we live in a secular society where so many people are hostile to Christianity, and that is true. But there are people in our city, in our neighborhood, at your job, in your school, around the world that are desperate to hear the gospel and no one to tell them the gospel. Here's what I found, that people are far more interested in hearing the gospel than we're interested in sharing the gospel. And so he says that we are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. This is Luke 10, 2. One of the things that I have done the past few weeks in, in preparation, just knowing what this text is for every day at 10.02, personally, I am reminded to pray that God would send labors into the harvest. And so many of you, you hear what Jesus says, and you say, well, I can do that. I don't mind praying for other people to go. And you say, here are they, Lord, send them. But Jesus here in this text is insinuating that as you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, that God would change your heart and move you so that you would be an answer to that prayer. You know, here's what Jesus is teaching us and maybe teaching you this morning. The more you pray about the harvest, the more your heart goes towards the harvest. You think about that. The things that you pray about is where your heart goes to, right? And as you pray more and more for our city, our heart goes for our city. And the more that we pray and pray for unbelievers to come into a relationship with Jesus, the more our desire is to see them come to know him. See, I found this personally in my own life. The more I pray about sharing the gospel, the more gospel I share. So when is the last time you prayed that God would give you boldness to share the gospel with somebody? Now, what we also learn is that God does not just have a general mission for you. He has a specific mission for you. You say, really, Pastor? God has a specific mission for me? Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us this. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a specific ministry that he has uniquely shaped for you and you for. 
And so what that means is that there are some people that only you are going to have the opportunity to share with. There are people that I'm not going to have the opportunity to share with. There are going to be people out there that only you have the ability to reach and to share. And so for you to do that, you have to see it. You're going you're to have the ability to share because of your past experiences, the context where you are, the sphere of influence, and even your hurt. Some of you have gone through a horrific few years. And you're like, God, what are you doing? Why am I going through all this pain? Why am I going through all these trials? Could it not be that your deepest hurt is your greatest ministry? Could it not be that God has allowed you to go through what you've gone through so you can be a ministry and a blessing to others to point them to him? Listen, God has brought us in to send us out. He didn't bring us in to sit sour and soak until we croak. He's brought us in to send us out. Amen? Can I get a witness on that one? Some of y'all are riveting over there. God brought us in to send us out. Number two, our faith is personal but should never be private. In verse three, he says that I am sending you out. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Here's what we have to understand, church. Believers are to be gentle. What does he say in other passages? To be harmless as a dove, but wise as a snake? We're to be lambs. We're not to be wolves. But yet we are to go as lambs in the midst of wolves, which is very courageous. Then verses 4 through 8, we see here that Jesus gives them marching orders. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He's not saying that they were to go barefoot. Just don't bring anything extra. You go out, and basically, he's giving them the instructions he gave the 12, but he's trying to teach them to be totally dependent upon him as you go out. And then notice it says here, greet no one on the road. Does that mean that we're to be rude for Jesus? No. It says there's a sense of urgency here because in that day, greetings took a long time. And so he says here, you have to have a sense of urgency for the mission. There can't be any distractions. Verse number nine, uh, verse number five, he says, whatever house you enter first, say peace upon this house. If there's a son of peace there, your peace shall rest upon him. One of the things that we teach our personnel who are around the world, when you go into a city for the very first time, you go and you pray that God would send you to that person of peace, that person that God has, has been moving in their heart, and you find that person of peace and you invest in that person of peace, and God's gonna use that person of peace to change that community. So he says, do that. Have your peace there. Remain there. Don't just go from house to house mooching. You're not to be a moocher. Don't go couch surfing. You stay there until you're to move on. And then he says in verse number nine, heal the sick. Now, what was this healing of the sick? Well, it was a sign that pointed to the reality of the message. We've talked about this before. The signs that Jesus did and the signs that the apostles did authenticated both the messenger and the message. The message is not less than the miracles. The miracles only point to the message. Does that make sense? So many times in our day, we so fixate ourselves on miracles or existential experiences, and we forget the gospel. Miracles are only signposts that point you to what the gospel is in reality. And so what was the gospel message? Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus declared it. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
so our mission is not just to do good deeds, but our mission is to share good news. And so that word gospel, the kingdom of God has come near you, was a word that was already used by the, in the Greek language when Jesus used it. It's, that word gospel wasn't just something that Jesus invented, or that the apostles uh, invented at the time. Here's what a gospel was. A gospel was news of an objectively history-changing event that changed everyone's situation and required a response from those who heard it. So a gospel was good news, or it was news that that was so objectively history-changing that it required a response. And so let me give you an example of this. In 930 B.C. at the Battle of Marathon, I know some of you maybe, this is history, so you're already going to take a nap. In the Battle of Marathon, the Persians invaded Greece at that, that, that battle. And everyone in Greece believed that the Persians were going to come in, they were going to destroy the army, they were going to defeat the army, they were going to come in and they were going to ransack all of the country and they were going to take over. As a matter of fact, the Persian army had, had eight, for every eight soldiers, Greece only had one. It was eight to one odds. And so the Athenian army came into the plains of Marathon to defend the land, and everyone in Athens was in panic. People were looting. There was craziness in the street. There was so much problems. People were doing this because everyone expected the Athenians to get defeated, and if the Athenians were defeated, Greece would fall. Well, guess what happened? The Greeks won. Everybody was surprised. And so the Greek army realized that they needed to share the news back in Athens. They needed to share the good news. They needed to share what one writer said, the gospel, to keep Athens from panic and looting and fear. And so what they did is they shared the gospel by sending one runner that they called an evangelist. And that evangelist's job was to run from Marathon to Athens to share the gospel. And that's where we get the whole thought of a marathon, the distance between Athens and Marathon. So if you've ever ran a marathon, there you go. And so this evangelist came with the gospel, ran into the city of Athens, and all he could say was this, rejoice, we have triumphed. And then he fell dead because of the run. He shared the gospel, which was the good news that Athens, that Greece had won, victory was secured, everyone was saved, rejoice, we have triumphed. That word that was used and, and echoed down throughout history of a life-changing news is the same word Jesus uses that we are to share. And Jesus, when he sends his disciples out, sends them out with a message saying, rejoice, we have triumphed. And it requires a response from anyone who hears. Why is it different? Because Jesus was not just a prophet giving us advice on how to live our lives and showing us a way to heaven. Jesus is God who has come to give us good news that he is the only way to heaven. Now listen, why I tell you this is because Jesus sent them out not to just do good deeds and say nothing. He sent them out to do good deeds to share something. And what we have to understand is that our faith is not private and only for you and me. 
Our faith is meant to be public and shared with other people. There are many in our day, especially in the secular, liberal wings of our country, who will say this, you are free to practice your religion as long as it's private. But if you make it public, there will be consequences. And I want you to understand that the, some of the things that you're hearing in our society politically, the, some of the, the laws and the actions, they are wanting to basically say, you Christians can be Christians as long as it's confined in the four walls of your church or your home. But don't share your faith with anybody. We'll tolerate you because we have to, but if you make it public, we'll shut you up and we'll shut you down. And that's coming to America, folks. But here's the irony. The irony is this, is that people in our culture are telling you not to tell anybody, not to convert anybody, but the irony is that everyone in our culture is trying to convert people to something. When you sell something, you're trying to convert them to buy your product. When you root for a team, you're trying to convert people to get on board and, and root for your team. When, when it comes to politics, people are trying to convert you to their politics. And even telling someone you're not to convert somebody is trying to convert them to that ideology. The person who tells you that your faith should be private and not public is trying to convert you to their point of view. And listen, my friends, if they're going to do it, so are we. Our faith is personal. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. But it's not meant to be private. It's meant to be shared in public. And the reason why we shared in public, and we didn't have time to read all these verses, because judgment is real. Judgment is real. If you knew that judgment was coming this week, would it change how you would talk to people around you? If you knew that judgment was real, that hell was real, that time is short and the need is great, would it change how you interact and live your daily life? Jesus is going to say a woe on these unrepentant cities, cities that heard the gospel and didn't respond to it. And now he's basically going to say to them, history is going to leave you behind. In, in verses 13 through, through, through 15, he uses the word woe. And, and woe is not just a curse on people. Jesus isn't damning people. He's, he's calling out to them with empathy and tears, calling them to repent. Listen, my friends, we cannot be silent. We cannot just be satisfied with saying nothing. People need the message now more than ever because the time is late and the need is great. And the judge is at the door. And listen, my friends, the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time. Now, maybe you're here today and maybe you're very antithetical to that and you say, well, pastor, I'm just going to live my Christianity by being a good person. Well, if being a good person and not telling people why you are a good person, then you're a hypocrite. You're to live your life before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven, and you're to be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks you of the reason of hope that is in you. Your faith is personal, but it's not private. Here's the third point, and actually this is the message that I really want you to get. True joy is not found in what you do for Jesus but in what Jesus has done for you. So he sent them out. He sent them out on this mission. They went out town to town. They did everything Jesus had told them to do. 
In verse 17, the 72 return. And they're, they're happy. They're, they're excited. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to, you, to us in your name. I mean, they went door to door in every Jewish town, sharing good news, doing miraculous deeds. They were exhilarated. They, they were excited. They were on cloud nine. They were used by God to do this ministry. I mean, could you imagine the rush and the thrill for these men to see people's lives changed because of them? Could you imagine that? If, let's say if you knew somebody that was in the throes of, uh, of grave addiction and they're addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol or pornography and you were able to speak the word of Jesus to them and they were to be completely freed from that addiction. Wouldn't that be a rush? Wouldn't that be exciting? Well, here, that's what these guys come back to. And, and you would think Jesus would be like, yeah, a boy, good job. But what does Jesus say? He says, boys, you think that's something? Notice what he says here in, in verse 19. He says, pardon me, verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You think that's a big deal? <laughs> you kicked a couple of measly demons out of somebody? I kicked Satan out of heaven. You think you're something? And here's the thing, Jesus not only kicked Satan out of heaven, but in a few months, he's going to defeat Satan forever at the cross. And then verse 19, he says, you think that's something. Well, listen, you think it's something that you've got to do some level one demons out of somebody. Well, I'm going to give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy. Now, we read that and some of y'all are like, are we in West Virginia? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, what does that mean? Is it pre Listen, are we passing out snakes at the end of the service? Well, no, that's not what I mean here. That's not what Jesus means here. What Jesus is saying is, you think you're hot stuff, but you are more than conquerors through me. And I have given you an entrusted authority in my name over Satan. Do you understand that Jesus has empowered you to move mountains in ministry? And we just ask, we just pray little nimbly, mimbly Mickey Mouse prayers. Lord, keep me from having a bad day and be with all those people in the world. When we can ask God to move mountains. But he says, I love what he says here in verse, verse 20. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, you, you think you're hot stuff. You think you're all that in a bag of potato chips? I saw Satan fall from heaven, and I've given you power over Satan, but that's not the point. Don't, don't get excited about that. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Don't get your joy there. Don't, don't let that be the source of your joy. Now, listen, Jesus is not rebuking the joy of ministry. There, there is a joy in seeing people's lives liberated from oppression, and we should rejoice as a church seeing lives transformed by the gospel and marriages restored and homes healed and life changed. But these guys weren't rejoicing because people were helped. They were rejoicing because they were the ones that helped them. Because they did it. They were more excited about what God was doing through them and what, God was, and what they were doing for him than what Jesus had done for them. They loved God more because of what he did through them more than what he did for them. 
And here's what I want you to get at this morning. Where do you find your joy? If you find your joy in what you can do, if you find your joy in what others think about you, if you find joy in the fact that others listen to you, what happens when they don't? But what happens when the world that you've always known falls apart and, and all this thing that you thought that you were doing that you were so great at doesn't work? What happens when you're not able to do the things you were used to do? You know what happens? Two things. You get angry. Or three things. You get angry or you try to manipulate people or you get depressed and you feel worthless. Because if you find your joy in the fact that you can do whatever, and, and let's take ministry out of this. If I find my joy in the fact that I am good at this or good at that or I have this or I have that or I can do this or that or that, this thing or the other, if I find my joy there, what happens when that doesn't work? What happens when your basketball team is 8 and 14? What happens? What do you do? Where do you find your joy? So Jesus says, don't rejoice in what you can do. Rejoice in what has been done. Rejoice. Notice what he says, that your names are written in heaven. What does it mean to have your name written down? In Jesus' day, when we think of names written down, we, we're used to that. But in Jesus' day, if your name was written down, then you were something. Only citizens had their names written down, and very few people in that day were citizens of a state or a nation. To have your name written down was to be a somebody. You made the cut. How many of you ever tried out for something and didn't make the list, like your sports team or a play or a job or college? You ever gone to a restaurant that was really nice, and you, you go up there and say, a table, you know, Brumback, party of two, and they look at you and say, well, are you on the list? And you say, well, I didn't know there was a list. Yeah, there's a list, and your name's not on here. Get out. <laughs> Probably most of us are not on many lists. Well, some of the lists that we're on is the spam list and the telemarketer call checking on your home uh, car warranty. Uh, you know, we're on those lists. What Jesus here is saying is he says, don't get your sense of self-worth because the demons are subject to you. Get your sense of self-worth because your names are written down. Don't get your joy from your gifts or your power or your accomplishment. Do not look to your resume for self-esteem. Why? Because that's what made the devil the devil. And if you look to your power and your gifts and your accomplishments for your sense of self-esteem, you'll either have a lot of self-love or you'll have a lot of self-loathe. He says, rejoice that your names are written down where? In heaven. Now, this is something, again, culturally that's going to really wow the minds of these guys that are listening to this because in the ancient days, ancient people believed that at the end of time, there would be a judgment. And at that judgment, the books would be opened and everyone would be judged on the basis of their good deeds. And so if your good deeds throughout your whole life outweighed your bad deeds at the end of your life, then your name would then be written in the book of life and you could go into paradise. Some of you, you think, well, what's changed? <laughs> well, Jesus says, listen, don't rejoice that your name's that you could cast out demons. He says, rejoice that your names, what, are written. You know what that means? He didn't say rejoice that your names will be written because you cast out all these demons. No. Rejoice your, your, that your names are already written. 
Now, this guy's going to look at you and say, wait a minute, I'm not dead yet. At least I don't think. Do you see dead people? <laughs> Some of you will catch that one. It'll take you a second, but, it, but it'll be there. They could have said, Jesus, my life's not over. I've still got a lot more good to do. I've got a lot more good to do because I've got to make it in. But you're telling me my name's written down. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you think that you've got to do enough so you can get in, that's not the gospel. The gospel says this, that your name isn't written down because of your record. Your name is written down because of my record. And here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, in Jesus, you're already in. You don't have to do these things to be loved and accepted. You don't have to cast out demons and go bippity-boppity-boo to go to heaven. So don't find in these things your self-worth. Find the motivation for ministry in the fact that your name is already written down. The gospel says that because of Jesus, you're in. He, he has done everything necessary for you to be right with God. And so because of that, his love for you should be more exhilarating than anything you would ever do for him. Think about this. What is the greater miracle? Is the greater miracle that the spirit removed a demon from another person's body through you? Or is the greater miracle that he removed you out of hell for eternity? The greater miracle is not the things that I do for God. The greater miracle is what he has already done for me. And that's why, my friends, we must get our self-image from Jesus. Being in him is greater than anything we can do for him. Paul understood that. If you're new to church, you can tell I get excited, but this is exciting news. Paul understood that Paul had the equivalent of a triple PhD. He could speak any language you could imagine. He was a man of great notoriety and wealth. He was a man of religious piety. I mean, he floated everywhere he went. And yet, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote this. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as skubala, rubbish. Why? All these things, all my accomplishments, all my resumes, everything I've ever done in my past, I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then later he said to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let me end with this. Uh, my family goes to Disney quite a bit. We're Disney junkies. Uh, my name is Alan and I have a problem. Um, on Fridays, typically I take my family to, Hollywood, to, to Disney, to the parks. And one of the parks that we like to go to is Hollywood Studios. And they have a lot of great rides. Uh, and the newest ride is the Rise of the Resistance. Now, some of you maybe have heard of that ride, but you've never been on that ride. Because here's the thing about that ride. To get on that ride, you've got to make the list. You've got to make the reservation list. You've got to get on your Disney app... Right at 7 o'clock, 
and be one of the first people to sign up for that ride because they have limited seats. Now, I have done this successfully. Pastor Mike Corgan has not. At times, there seems to be some sense of skill. But at other times, Pastor Mike, I want you to understand that I believe it's the divine providence of God. The stars, the moon, and the sun perfectly aligning. Now, some of you are like, I don't even know what he's talking about. What is, he, what is this all about? Well, it's a very great ride. It's a wonderful ride. And there's nothing more exhilarating. Going into Hollywood studios with hundreds and thousands of your closest friends and knowing you've made the list. Knowing that regardless of what the line may look like, you've got a reservation. You're in. And you can enjoy whatever problems Hollywood Studios throws you because you know you're on the list. As great as that feeling is, there is a more lasting joy than a thrill ride for 10 minutes. It's a joy that money cannot buy and death can never take away. It is the joy of knowing that now and forever my name is on the list in heaven. That there is a kingdom waiting. There is a Father who loves me. There is an eternal inheritance coming. There is a Jesus who says, I am preparing a place for you. And when you die, you will rise and stand before the living God, not in fear of eternal torment. I am on the list. And if you are in Christ, you're on the list. But here's the truth. The only reason your name is written down in the book of life is because Jesus' name was blotted out. See, Jesus on the cross was treated how we should be treated. The one who defeats Satan is the one who was cut off from the list so that you and I can make the list. And he took our sin and our sorrow and he made them his very own and we get his joy. See, the only way you ever make the list is because Jesus was kicked off the list for you to be on the list. And so what do we do with that? Is what, number one, we share without fear or care because we're, we have our names written down. We can share Jesus without fear because our names are written down. Though you kill me, though you hate me, though you cancel me, you can't cancel my name in heaven. And we can face today and tomorrow because our names are written down. Regardless of what comes to you this week, you can rejoice because your name is written down. Our ability to be joyful in all things is the measure of how much we believe the gospel. So the question is this, is your name written down? We say, Pastor, I don't know. Is it written down? You know how you can know? You can know your name is written down because you've surrendered your life to Jesus. Because you've put your faith and trust in Him. Not in what you can do for Him, but you put your faith and trust in only what He can do for you. Have you done that? 
If you haven't done that, today you can. Today you can surrender your life to Him. Today you can lay down your life and give it to Him, and He'll take it, and He'll change it, and He'll make you His. He'll put your, His Spirit inside of you, and He'll give you a joy unspeakable, full of glory. He'll give you peace that passes all understanding. But more importantly than that, He'll give you a right relationship with God that you could not do and you can never earn. And so would you just bow with me, pray with me right now. And if you're here today and you've had a bad day or you're having a bad week or you're having a bad life, you can rejoice that your name is written down. Father in heaven, what I couldn't do, what I couldn't say, where I wasn't able to articulate, I know your Holy Spirit was moving in those, those moments, in those gaps. So Father, I pray right now for those in this room and those watching online that does not have a relationship with you. Father, I pray today would be that moment that they would surrender their lives to you that they would pray and trust you as their Savior. Maybe pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've not lived how I should, but I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead, and I surrender my life to you. Father, whatever those words need to be, may it be faith resonating from these hearts, crying to you. Lord, I pray that you give us joy today, that restore unto us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.